Welcome to the podcast channel of the East Bay Unity Intergroup of Overeaters Anonymous. The opinions expressed here are those of individual members and do not represent OA as a whole. For more information about our intergroup, please visit our website at eastbayoa.org. Um, good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. I'm Jonathan, compulsive overeater. Um, thank you, Nyla, for asking me to speak at this meeting. And um, certainly that's that's where I wanted to start. I've been in OA for five years um, th- this month and been asked to speak a couple of times previously in various meetings. And it has just been the hardest and fastest no from me. Um, like not even not even a second's worth of consideration. I do this exercise. I work at a high school and I'm not a teacher, but I'm an advisor to ninth grade students. And I do this cool exercise with them every year where we talk about different scenarios and we talk about things that are in their comfort zone, their stretch zone, and their danger zone. And you know, we were always talking to our students about leaning into discomfort and what that looks like. But I like that exercise because it'll come up with scenarios like you overhear somebody bullying somebody else or somebody saying something that might be racist. And it's like, where does where do you fall? Are you comfortable? Are you stretch zone? Are you danger zone? And it's not actually great to live in the danger zone, like the, the leaning into discomfort and the growth to me is more about like what happens in your stretch zone and like the concept of being the speaker is a real like danger zone one to me Um, and it's not rational but it just sort of plays on all my fears of like will I have enough to say will I say too much will I not speak on topic Um, you know all these issues of self-worth and self-loathing come up for me around I'm having the spotlight on me. And I'm here in my home meeting with all of you who I know will love me no matter what comes out of my mouth and whether it's useful to you or not. But I can still um, really recognize the huge gifts of the program to be able to sit here today and be like, yeah, it sort of pushes my buttons to be asked to do this, but I am willing. I am willing to do this in a way that I wasn't a year or two or three years ago. And to me, it's kind of a nice analogy to a lot of what program has meant to me, which is about um, expanding the amplitude of my comfort zone, my stretch zone, and my danger zone. There are more things that I am okay and willing to sit with and be with in discomfort and without answers for than I was. And I I give just a huge amount of credit to the work that I've done in program um, and the tools of the program to be able to hang with that kind of discomfort. Um, So glad to be here. Also just wanted to like say a moment about the new year and the holidays. Like it's been, both hard, harder for me to sort of be out of my routines these last couple of weeks and my kids are off school and 
Um, I had family visiting in town and there were food choices and options that were not typical for me and just really came to appreciate how the routines keep me going in so much of my program and how important they are to me and that this massive break in, in everything about my routine has been hard and has made me want to reach for the food more and make some choices that I didn't always want to make. Um, on the flip side of that, I've also been thinking about New Year's and what that was like for me in the past and how January 1st and New Year's resolutions would often be a big part of a thing for me to fix my problems around eating. And I would, I would make a resolution to exercise more and to not eat refined sugar. And, and it was usually made um, in a bit of a desperate sense of like, I need January 1st in order to make a turnaround in my life. And um, I do not feel that this year. Um, I, I went out to eat a really lovely abstinent meal in a restaurant yesterday. It was just that just incredible meal. And um, the owner of the restaurant came over and was when I had asked to eat sort of what I was what I wanted, I asked him to make me something special off the menu so I could eat the way I wanted. He said, Oh, it's December 31st. You're eating, you're starting your New Year's resolution early. And I was like, Nope, I've been I've been doing this for for many, many months now. And um, it just was a great feeling to be like, um, I don't have to do anything different today on January 1st than I did yesterday on December 31st, a really different kind of feeling and uh, appreciate program for, um, for helping me just get into that space and those routines. Um, and also just like if you're having a hard time with the holidays, I feel that too. I really, really feel that too because I, I, I have been feeling that those breaks and routines. Um, tell you a little bit about my story that I was in a not this meeting, another meeting um, a week or two ago and somebody introduced themselves as like a garden variety overeater, but very intense. And I was like, yeah, I was like that. That's a good description. It's like, um, I know the fallacy of comparing myself to other people in this program and in life in general, but sometimes I'll hear people's stories, especially I get, especially around the, the, my parents, um, because my parents were and are um, loving and have so many good qualities. And so I can get into that rut of being like, gosh, why did like everyone else has a good reason to be a compulsive overeater, but you know, I don't, I don't have such a good reason because my parents generally were really great and supportive. Um, so uh, I grew up here in Berkeley and um, was always like a super highly anxious kid. And um, the first thing I can remember is maybe like three or four years old and waking up in the middle of the night, just panicked that um, it was the Cold War. And I was just panicked that there was going to be a nuclear bomb and just like super anxious and um, unconsolable by everyone other than my mom. Um, so that's a strong memory I had. Um, and that kind of fear and anxiety 
was really strong and pervasive throughout my childhood. And the, the thing, whether it was the Cold War or whether it was getting sick, you know, would change and be age appropriate. But it was really, um, it was really about not feeling safe. And the one person who could make me feel safe was my mom. And I could never feel that safety on my own. And I could never feel it um, from any other sources. So I became super dependent upon my mom for comfort and for safety in the world. Um, I remember, I don't know what age I was, very young, going out to eat at my family's favorite Chinese restaurant and my mom remarking, she said, um, you're the only person in our family that stops eating when you're full. And even at a young age, I took that as a point of pride and have come as I've done my food history and sort of looked back on it to realize that everyone in my nuclear family, my parents and my sister, um, were all compulsive overeaters growing up. And, and so it's interesting to me that my mom sort of didn't consider me a compulsive overeater at that age, because maybe I wasn't always one, but I, I quickly succumbed to um, sugar and as, as the means to soothe myself when I got too old to sort of run to my mom for every little bit of comfort. And, um, you know, there were various kinds of transitions. I went from this small, progressive, super community-based private school, really tiny, um, to just going to the giant public middle school um, without any warning or any kind of transition. So that was sort of a stressor in my life. Um, and I would say the other things that sort of had a big impact on me turning to food more for comfort um, were one, like I was, I was the victim of sexual abuse by an older neighbor, um, which obviously sucked. Um, and I had no, no, tools and I had so much shame about it. Thanks, Emily. Um, just no, no tools to deal with that and so much shame about, and, and not even an understanding of what was happening, but just like, and it really disconnected me from my body in a certain way um, that made me feel unsafe in my body. And then when I was 16, a junior in high school, I got diagnosed with type one diabetes and, um, that's such a such a dovetailing disease with um, compulsive overeating because there's a physical and an emotional. I'm not quite as clear on the spiritual aspects, but the physical thing is like when you get a low blood sugar, you're not getting enough fuel for your brain and your body starts to react. I mean, if you don't have diabetes, it's sort of like when you get so hungry that you can barely function, but it's like that even more strongly. And um, diabetes again was like, I'm not safe in my body anymore is the feeling that it was. And I'm isolated and I'm alone and I don't know anyone who has it. And, um, and I didn't know anything about it. I was very scared about long-term complications. It was just played on so many of my fears. And then I went to diabetes camp about three years later when I was 19 and worked there. 
And we had something called the candy bar lecture where the camp doctor would say like the rest of the world doesn't really understand about diabetes, which is true. Um, she was like, you can manage your diabetes and you can really kind of eat anything, including this candy bar. And they like passed out Snickers bars at the time. And they said, all you need to do to manage your diabetes is know how to dose the right amount of insulin for what you're eating, including this candy bar. And that started me on this path of being like, I can outsmart diabetes. Like I am a smart guy. I can manage this really complicated disease and I can eat it. I can just go around the world being like, let me show you how I can eat cake and cookies and eat whatever I want and be in perfect control. And I was from a diabetes standpoint, like all the tests and the markers, perfect control um, on all those things. Meanwhile, I was just eating myself into absolute numbness and oblivion and just awful, awful um, eating that took completely took over my life. So I didn't have to feel any of the emotions and the fear that sort of transferred out from childhood into adulthood. Um, and I do want to say also that I, I had a really lovely childhood in other respects too. I tend to focus on this fears and the traumas and the things that happened. This childhood was also magical for me and super fun and connective and lovely. And um, I, it's kind of a tangent, but just like another thing that my, my former sponsor really helped me see is just to like savor the good things too. My mind tends to be um, so skeptical and so doubtful that it's like, if a good thing happens, I'll celebrate it. And then I'll just move on to clamp on to the fear and the anxiety and whatever it is that'll get me back into this looping pattern that I've been doing for 48 years on this planet. And um, I like to, when, I, when I'm telling about my childhood story, which sounds like not so great when it comes to food and different things that happened to me. I also just want to acknowledge that it was also a sweet, special time as well. And that to me is, um, again, connecting back to sort of the expansion of the comfort zone and danger zone. It's like, that's, that's what so much of my work in this program has been about is been about, um, not doing the black and white thinking about that things don't that a lot about perfectionism and letting go and realizing that I can have joy and I can have sorrow and I can have feelings and those feelings do not have to be pleasant. And I do not have to turn, I do not have to comfort those feelings with food or numb those feelings with food. Um, and I just like, as such a garden variety compulsive overeater, I did, I did everything. I, I went through so many periods of um, good eating and losing weight. And then periods where I would gain weight and I had this cyclical job, which I still have where I would sort of in the six months where I'm really on, I would usually gain 20 to 30 pounds and then I would lose most or all of it. And I repeated that cycle for 10 years at like great cost to my body and to my, and the, not to mention the emotional toll, um, really, really tough to go through that, um, every year. But that was sort of my thing is like, I never, I probably never gained, thank you, Emily. Um, I never gained more than maybe I'm probably 
I'm at basically my lowest weight, which is maybe 40 pounds lower than my highest weight, something like that. But I did that cycle like 400 pounds worth of times over and over again at just like terrible cost to myself. Um, so as my time is running a little bit short, let me um, see if I can talk a little bit about step one. Um, I was just looking over some stuff that I had written and reading some stuff from various sources as I thought about step one. And actually is the very last two sentences in the um, OA 12 and 12 that um, stuck out to me this morning, um, which is speaking of step one, um, it's, which is, you know, we we're powerless admitted, get it right, we admitted we were, powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. It says, first we grasp this knowledge intellectually, and then finally we come to believe it in our hearts. When this happens, we have taken the first step and are ready to move ahead in our program of recovery. And um, that to me is so powerful because my work is so much about like, I didn't have religion growing up, and sometimes I'm so jealous of people who did, but I am, I am a skeptic. And what I have is my doubting mind. And this program is, is like slowly, not in these aha, amazing moments, but slowly connecting me to my higher power, to things outside myself, to know that my doubting mind, my anxious mind is not the only thing that is, it is not the true existence. It is part of my existence. It is part of my story. It will probably always be with me. But um, this idea of like grasping onto things intellectually is one where I just, if I, if that's all I do, um, I turn against myself inevitably because my mind is so, so good at making anything um, a thing to, to, say that I don't have self-worth or that I'm not good enough or that I'm miserable or sad. And um, that's what step one, it's so like deceptively simple, but to me, it's about how can I feel it in my heart? And, and what does that even mean? And for a long time in this program, I was sort of looking for somebody else's answer to that question because I didn't understand. I didn't understand what it meant. Um, and, um, through a lot of work and also outside work, like I have an amazing therapist who I just connect with so, so well, um, I've been able to sort of connect with step two with like, uh, with a power outside of myself that is, but it's, it's personal to me. It really is. And it's not anybody else's and that power makes me believe step one that um that i'm powerless and instead of powerlessness being weakness it is so freeing to realize that um i'm not in control and i don't need to be in control and i don't need to do the things that i've been doing all my life that sort of keep my life smaller and in closer circles that i have so many tools and resources just by letting go just by surrendering, just by truly feeling it, feeling it in my body, 
not just thinking it in my head because intellectually it made sense to me from the first moment I read it, but living it and feeling it took so much longer for me. And it was a really personal thing that was about my own coming to understand that it wasn't, I couldn't be done through, um, it was helped by hearing everybody and I, and I love this program, but it could never be done by just trying to adopt somebody else's understanding of the steps and of the program. Um, and I think that's probably, is that my time, Emily? Time. Okay. Um, so, um, thank you, uh, for letting me share on step one and being with you all, my home group and, um, this meeting has just meant the world to me and, um, happy new year, everyone.